We are continuing our series through the book of Acts, and uh, uh, we're going to be finishing chapter 3, Peter's sermon today. I'm going to be talking a lot about doctrine and theology today, okay? Did you guys get that? Doctrine and theology. And here's the thing about doctrine and theology. Number one, it's really hard to preach it well, okay? Because there's that part of thing where we're like, well, it is what it is, so just get it. At which point there's a huge disconnect because many of you guys, when we're talking about doctrine and theology, you're always going, how does this apply to me? What does this mean for me? How does this apply to me? And I just want to go, I don't know. Just figure it out. You know, this is what the Bible says. But I stink it up if I do that. I got to somehow connect it and tie it. So here's what I'm asking you guys to do. Know in advance that what I'm going to be talking about today is theology, some doctrinal stuff, and that it could have a tendency to be kind of informational kind of, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> my fellow hebrew greek nerd bible nerd over there whoever was it you nate yeah okay so for those of you guys that you know that have a hard time what i'm asking you to do is please hang in there with this theology doctrinal stuff okay 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 because i'm going to be using words like justification which at which point your eyes will just glaze over and i'm going to go no 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 let me explain what that means how it applies to you i'm going to use words like regeneration to which you're going to go what the heck does that mean i'm going to apply you know so i need you to hang in there through this what's that okay um i thought you were already going i don't understand which i wanted to go of course you don't understand i haven't explained it yet oh hold on okay um so, you know, and so because of time, I'm just going to literally like cut a major portion of what I talked about this morning in the front, and I'm just going to dig into it, jump in. Is it okay? Is it okay? All right. All right. So with that warning, with that warning, let's jump into Acts chapter 3. Look at Peter's sermon. Look at Peter's sermon. Um, he, here, here it is. Verse, uh, let's pick up actually at verse four, 13, 13, end of verse 13. Um, where he says, he's speaking to a group of people who have gathered because they've seen a miraculous healing of a man, okay? So they've gathered, and Peter takes uh, this opportunity and preaches this sermon. He says, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. So repent and then turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that in times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy servants. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. This is God's word. In Peter's sermon, Peter essentially articulates the essence and the core of what the gospel message is. Remember last week we talked about how if you're living your life 
in a way that shines Jesus. At some point, somebody's going to come up and say to you, who are you? Why do you believe what you do? Tell me about it. Okay? Some point. And the reality is, as Christians, there is a sense of responsibility for us to say more than just, uh, believe God loves you, uh, believe in Jesus. There is a sense in which we need to know the essential core aspects of the gospel. And Paul hits at this over and over again. And Peter here gives the essential core essence of the gospel. And, 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 and it's in three parts. Here it is. First, it is you need to know who Jesus is. Second, you need to know what Jesus did. And third, you need to know what we need to do. Okay? <laughs> you need to know who Jesus is. You need to know what Jesus did. And you need to know what we need to do. Very simple outline, and yet there's tons of that underneath it. Who is Jesus? Let's start there. Peter says in verse 14, Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Peter says he's holy and righteous one. What is he saying? He is getting at this essential truth of the gospel message, and that is that Jesus Christ is not a mere man. Jesus never claimed to be. Uh, he's not a, a good moral teacher. Jesus never claimed to be. Jesus wasn't a revolutionary. He never claimed to be. Jesus Christ, essence is God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God in flesh. To which you're going, okay, what does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. Um, I'm gonna, today's like C.S. Lewis Sunday. Is that okay? So I'm going to, because you know, he's way smarter than me. And so he says things a lot better than me. So instead of trying to not say, in other words, I sound smart when I read him, so I'm just going to read him so that I sound smart. Okay, anyway. This is a bad joke. Come on. He claims to forgive sins, mere Christianity. He says he has always existed. He says he's coming to judge the world at the end of time. Now, let's get this clear. Among pantheists like Indians, anyone might say that he was part of God or one with God, and there'd be nothing very odd about it. But this man, since he was a Jew, would not mean that kind of God. See, God, according to Jews, in their language, meant the being outside the world who made it and was infinitely different from anything else. And when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus Christ as great moral teacher, but I don't, expect to, I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing that you can't say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be a lunatic on a level with the man who says that he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You got to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and you can kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let's not come with this patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He didn't produce that effect on any of the people who actually met him. Read the Bible. He produced three effects. People hated him. People were terrified. Or they fell down and worshipped him in adoration. See, our responses to him tell us a lot about who we think he is. Our responses to him, let me say that again, tell us a lot about who we think he is. Because if you think that Jesus is the son of God, you don't treat him like your advisor or your counselor. 
You don't go to him for advice. You fall down and worship him as God and you center your entire life around him. He doesn't exist to serve you. You and I exist to serve him. He doesn't exist to fulfill our agendas and our goals. We exist to fulfill his agendas. See, see, I can go on. How you treat Jesus, the son of God, says a lot about who you think he is. Peter, he's not a moral teacher. He's not a revolutionary. He is the son of God. What did he do? Christ died for our sins. You can't read his sermon without noticing the pronouns. Verse 13. You handed him over to be killed. You disowned him. You disowned the Holy Righteous One. You killed the author of life. And the reason why that's striking is think about it. Just like in Acts chapter 2. There are people in his audience going, why are you telling me this? I didn't kill him. I didn't crucify him. I didn't have the nails. I didn't have the hammer. They did. And yet Peter says emphatically, you are complicit in the death of Christ. Why? Because of, say it again, because of sins, Chris says. Okay, can we just, it's not cool in our culture to talk about sins. We don't like talking about sins. There's some churches that won't even mention the word sin. Lest they offend people. Oh, this isn't one of them. We talk about sin, because here's the reason why. If you can't understand and embrace the bad news about yourself, you will never understand and embrace the good news about Jesus Christ. If you can't come to embrace the bad news about what God says about you in Scripture, the good news of Jesus Christ will be anemic at best and dead to you at worst. Doesn't that make sense? Now, here's the thing. What the Bible says about sin, here it is. You say this in a lot in our church. We say it in this statement. We are more wicked and more sinful than we dared believe. Now, how many of us this morning go I can get on board with that. That's me. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Wow. I'm surprised. Uh, Well, okay, Chris, a handful of people. Because here's the thing. Here, you know what I find? You know what I find? I find, because Chris and I talk a lot and Kevin and I talk a lot. The the thing is, I find that people uh, are very open and incredibly refreshing about the level of wickedness and the depth of sin in their lives. They have no problems going, sin has wrecked my life. Sin has destroyed everything in me and around me. I have no problems admitting that I'm a sinner. But you know who finds this difficult to swallow? People in our culture who say, sin? That's unhealthy to think of yourself as a sinner. That's psychologically, emotionally traumatic to think of yourself as a flawed human being. And the Bible says, it's the healthiest thing to think of yourself as a sinner because then you can become open to the answer. To what really ails you. Can we talk about sin this morning? Is that okay? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. If nobody else connects, Chris, you and I can talk about. You can preach on sin. Okay. In fact, I sinned so much. It was just as if I was there with the whip in my hand. Okay. You know what the Bible says about sin? (laughs) You know, if everybody in this room thought like you do, I could stop preaching right now. But they don't. So I got to, is it okay if I preach? Okay, okay, okay. All right. Because here's what the Bible says about sin and why it's so heinous that that right there, this right here was the only answer and only solution. 
I'm talking to two groups of people today. I'm going to first of all talk to a group of you who consider yourself Christian, moral, good person, believes in right and wrong, so on and so forth. The Bible says that sin is disobedience to God. Sin is missing the mark. Sin is, sin, is, sin is both not doing what you know you ought to do, which is sin of omission, as well as doing things that you know you're not supposed to do, which is sin of commission. The Bible also says sin is not just stuff we do with our deeds. Sin is our thoughts, our motives. If you're sitting there going, I'm not a sinner, you're proud. And the Bible says that pride is one of the worst forms of sin. And you're a liar. (laughs) Do you want to preach? You want to preach? Man. You know what's funny, though, is in our culture, do you realize that people actually are not very, people embrace this aspect of our fallenness. You know why? Because when's the last time you jacked up somebody and somebody or somebody jacked you up and you confronted them and they came with, well, nobody is. So even people in our culture don't believe in some God or deity figure says, well, nobody's perfect. And the Bible says precisely. Let me talk to the second group of you. You guys, you don't consider yourself moral, religious, and I'm glad you're here because you're going, disobedience to God, if I believed in God, disobedience to some deity figure, if I believed in that, but I don't even, so I'm not a sinner. Well, you know what the Bible says the essence of sin is, actually? The essence of sin is not just breaking rules. It's a wrecked relationship. What do I mean? The essence of sin, Genesis 3 says, when man and woman decided, God, we're going to come out from your way, and we're going to choose our way. When man and woman decided, God, we are going to be the masters of our own universe. When man and woman decided, God, I know what's best for me, so I'm going to choose my route. Essence of sin. Essence of sin is us turning our back towards, uh, turning our backs against God and saying, God, essentially, I run this show. I'm going to be a little crass this morning, but sin is when man and woman decided to turn their backs towards God, rebelled against God, and gave God the big finger. And said, the essence of sin, the Bible says, it's not just doing bad things or breaking rules. The essence of sin is Christian or not when you and I say, God, I'm in charge of my life. And the fruit of that is the various sins that we see. Now, here's the thing. If you're not a Christian, spiritual, moral, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. But here's the other thing, effect of sin, is that sin leads to slavery. Because here's the thing about the nature of sin. The nature of sin is that because we were created to live in relationship to God and live for God, when we come out under that, we begin to live for something else. We begin to live for other things. So there are some of you who live for work. You don't just work. You live for it. There's some of you who live for a relationship. You don't just, you know, really, you live for it. You live for morality. You live for achievement. You live for all these things. And you sit there going, I'm not enslaved. Really? Then why are you anxious this morning? Why are you worried? Why are you feeling a sense of guilt? Why are you so driven? Why are you so exhausted? Christian or not? The essence of sin is finding self-salvation in other things. So you don't have to be a Christian or moral spiritual. There's some idol or pseudo-savior in your life that you're looking towards. And you're feeling guilty. Why? Because you can't have it. You're feeling fear. Why? Because that thing is being threatened. You're driven. Why? Because you have to have it or else. And you're worried. Why? Because you might not get it. Now, here's the thing about the Bible. The Bible is amazingly accurate. The Bible says 
That just as a piece of technology is unplugged from its source, when you and I live for all these other things and sin against God, it's like that piece of technology being unplugged from its power source. That we exist, but we cease to function. And you know what? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. For many of us this morning, the way that we would describe our life, we exist, but we cease to function. See, the Bible says the wage of sin is death, right? And here's the thing, you guys. When those of us who grew up in church talk about death, we think spiritual death and we can't know God and we can't love God and we can't. Here's the amazing thing that, for me, spiritual death isn't just not knowing God, not being able to Spiritual death is just merely existing and never knowing what it feels like to be alive. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Does anybody know what it's like to live every day without a purpose in life, without a mission in life? Does anybody know what it's like to get up every morning, go to bed at night? Does anybody know what it's like to live every day just existing, just existing in this existence? Why do people give up the will to live when they no longer have a purpose for living? Why is that? See, spiritual death isn't some, you know, spiritual death is when we unplug from our creator and we live for ourselves, which results in life of fear, anxiety, drivenness, worry. I'm asking you today, are you alive or are you existing? See, the great news about Jesus and Christianity, listen, it's not just that he forgave us, came to forgive us from sins, wrongdoing. Jesus Christ came to give you and me life. Freedom. Freedom. How does God do this? Every sin, every wrongdoing, whether it be cosmic treason or doing bad things, results in a debt that must be paid. Without someone paying down the debt, there is no reconciliation. There is no forgiveness. You and I know this. If Ruthie here, welcome back Ruthie, wrongs me and I make Ruthie pay by making her grovel, by making her apologize over and over again, by making her make amends for what she did to me, then she pays. But if I say, Ruthie, you know what? I don't need you to pay. I'm just going to forgive you. Then I absorb the debt for that wrongdoing for myself. We even say in our society, when a man robs or rapes somebody and goes to jail and serves many, many years, we have a saying in our culture. We say that man has paid his what? Debt to society. See, a serious wrong always produces that that must be paid. It can't be simply dismissed or washed away. Because if it's dismissed or wished away, there is something within us that says unfair, unjust, can't do that. Uh, We, Illinois, have been put on the national spotlight because we have wonderful politicians. No, Chris, let me, let, me, let me finish. I know you've got tons of things you want to say. We can talk afterwards. Not only our beloved Rod Belagojevich, but the man before him, his, six, his uh, predecessor, um, George Ryan, is serving a seven-year sentence term, right, for racketeering and all these other things. Because he allowed his office to run roughshod, so on and so forth, there were various truck drivers who got licenses illegally. And one of these guys was involved in head-on collision with a family of six kids. And the kids were instantly killed. And this was major news. Recently, Governor Ryan uh, came up for, I guess, President Bush couldn't pardon, okay, 
various folks. And so people have been writing to President Bush saying, will you pardon Governor Ryan? And because of that, there has been a, a number of responses to this whole thing in the blogosphere. So I check one of these out and go, I wonder what people are thinking and saying about Governor Ryan just walking after a year, a year and a half. And if you don't like, you know, F-bombs and swear words and all that stuff, don't go there. Because the amount of anger and fury at the possibility of Governor Ryan just walking and a lot of the crimes, Christian or not, here's one of them, ready? I personally know the family whose six children are now dead, thanks to that piece of garbage, George Ryan. By the way, I had to clean up the language, okay? (laughs) Use your imagination, Imagine your family wiped out because of the criminal actions of one man. What kind of Thanksgiving Christmas does this poor family get to enjoy? This disgusting human being will not even admit his guilt. Stop being a weasel, George Ryan, and take your medicine like a man. You want to get out early? Well, you should have thought about that before you robbed us. See, there's something in us. There's something in us that says when somebody commits a crime or does something wrong, they need to pay. A debt has to be paid. They can't just walk free. How can you and I possibly... If this is us, if this is fallen, sinful human beings, us feeling the sense of anger at the sake of injustice, how much more does a perfect, holy, righteous being like God feel this? How can you and I possibly worship a God who looks at pedophiles, child molesters, rapists, thieves, slave traffickers, and just looks at it and just kind of says, oh well, how can you possibly worship a God like that? A God like that is not worth worshiping. And anyone with a barely functioning conscience would not and should not worship a God like that. And our God, guess what? Our God didn't look the other way. Our God looked all the sins, all the wickedness, all the evil, and all the injustice committed by us and the world. And God didn't look the other way. He didn't just wink. He didn't just smile and look the other way. God said somebody has to pay. Somebody has to pay. And somebody does. Who? You? Me? Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God, absorbs the debt for our wrongdoings, our sins, and the sins and justice of the world, and takes it upon himself for our sin of commission and omission on himself, for our sins of thoughts, deeds, and words and actions on himself, for all the injustice and evil ever created by man on himself. He takes it on himself for there to be reconciliation, for there to be forgiveness. Somebody has to pay the debt. If somebody doesn't pay the debt, there is no reconciliation. God could have had you and me pay the debt. Instead, what does God do? He pays the debt. He pays down the debt. He becomes bankrupt. So we can go free. He does. He does. He does. Sin is us substituting ourselves in the place where God belongs in control of our lives. Salvation is God substituting himself for us where we deserve to be on the cross, paying down the debt for our sins. 
When's the last time that truth struck you? When's the last time that truth just blew you away? When's the last time that truth so unnerved you that you couldn't help but fall down on your face in gratitude to this God that you worship? Uh, you know what I find interesting is that I have lots of conversations with folks in our culture who, who, who struggle with this whole Jesus dying on the cross thing. And you might be one of them here. And the reason why they, they struggle with it is because they say, that's so weak. He was God. He demands my allegiance. He demands my life. He can't even save himself from the cross. Like, he, what, what? It's pathetic. Do you know that it was a stumbling block to the Jews of that day as well? Because they couldn't envision a Messiah who was so weak and so helpless that he went and died on the cross. And this is the reason why, listen very carefully, listen very carefully. Over and over again in the book of Acts, the apostles, when they preach about this, says, it's not accident, it's not a helpless, weak man. Who, it's planned by God. It's fulfillment of God's purposes. It's planned by God. It's fulfillment of God's purposes. Jesus himself said it, that he was no weakling who had no choice. Jesus himself said, I choose it. I choose it. I choose it for you. Listen. This is why the Father loves me, because I freely lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own free will. I have the right to lay it down. I also have the right to take it up again. I receive this authority personally from my Father. Do you know why in our church we talk about this so much? Do you know why in our church I am not, I am not embarrassed, even if people walk, I'm not embarrassed to like be in your face about this? Because I think non-Christians in our culture actually love this. You're going, huh? Why do you think in our pop culture, themes of a hero, themes of a man or woman giving of their lives for the sake of someone else has just a profound influence and impact on us? Why is it, guys, that movie like Braveheart with William Wallace still, you know, pulls at the heartstrings every time we're looking at it going, man, because there's a deep thing down inside of us that says, I want to be like. Why is it we look at Maximus and Gladiator and see his courage and what he does and say, I want to, why is that? Because the Bible says that God has made us in his image and God has set eternity in our hearts and there is a yearning in the human soul to be delivered and to be set free from evil and Satan and sin. And something that awaits a conquering hero who will come and deliver us. Jesus Christ wasn't some pathetic, helpless man who couldn't do otherwise. He isn't to be pitied like a sore loser. I was talking to somebody in the military. This analogy really struck to him. Jesus Christ is a soldier who puts himself, his own body, over a hand grenade and blows himself up to save his other fellow soldiers. Jesus Christ is that king who leads his troops in battle at the very front lines, risking his life and ultimately dying for the sake of the people that he loves and he rules over. Jesus Christ dies for our sins. Is that good news? I'm telling you, man, if this truth has gotten old, if this truth is like, nah, you need to go home and watch Braveheart. It's a lie when people tell you that focusing too much on the cross will get you depressed. It'll get you all discouraged. No, the reason why our lives are the way they are, pretty lame and passionless, is because we don't focus on the cross often enough.
if Jesus Christ did only that, then it wouldn't be very good news. You know why? Lots of people died for other people. Lots of people gave their lives for something that they believed in. But guess what? If you're not a Christian here today, check this out. We actually believe he rose again from the dead. He rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ. Now, why is it significant? Very important. You ready? If that, here's where doctrine and all that, if that truth doesn't sink into us, if we don't understand why he rose, why he rose, and the implications of that both individually and cosmically, our Christian lives will be anemic. What was it about Christ and his need to be resurrected that we need to embrace today? Did you guys all hear that? Why is it important that Christ rose from the dead? Okay. Two things, individually, one thing cosmically. One, Christ's resurrection ensures our justification. Christ's resurrection ensures our justification. What does justification mean? Does anybody know? Shout it out. Big Bible word, big Bible word. What does justification mean? Jeremy, what does justification mean? That's right. Justification. Justification. Think of it this way, you guys. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. What does it mean to condemn someone? To condemn someone. To condemn someone is to write them off. To condemn someone is to, uh, is to pronounce an unfavorable and adverse judgment on. By the way, can I just... Whoa, 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 whoa. You guys, you guys, before I lose you. Justification is opposite of condemnation. We are justified in Christ. Some of you are acting and functioning like you're still under condemnation. Because here's what condemnation is. To condemn is to pronounce an unfavorable and adverse judgment on. And you think that God has pronounced an unfavorable adverse judgment on you. Condemnation, to express strong disapproval of. You, you just walk around thinking God just disapproves of you. Condemnation. To censure, to cut out, to sentence, to punishment, to pronounce guilty. Now here's, listen, if you are a Christian, all those phrases about condemnation, they are not true of you. They are not true of you. If you are in Christ, the Bible says you are justified. Simply put, you are made right with God. That means you are embraced. You are welcomed. You are uncondemnable. You are undisapprovable. You are unseparatable from the love of God. You make it really extreme. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care what you plan to do today. I don't care what your past was like. If you are in Christ, the Bible says you, by the resurrection of Christ, are justified. You are made right with God. When God sees you, when God sees you, because of our union with Christ, God sees you as his son, Jesus. That means he doesn't see you as potentially righteous. He sees you as perfectly righteous. God doesn't see you potentially holy. He sees you as perfectly holy. Let me put it this way. God can't disown you no matter what you do any more than he can disown his son, Jesus. God can't reject you no matter what you do any more than he can reject his son, Jesus. God can't disapprove of you no matter what you do any more than he can disapprove of Jesus. Christ's resurrection ensures your justification. Amen? Oh, my God. Paul, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> I, you guys, I, 
See, this is why I, I felt so helpless this morning at 9 o'clock because I, I'm sitting here and I'm communicating these truths. And to be honest with you, honest with you, I don't have a cool story illustration to kind of make you go, oh, yeah, I, this truth will not be alive without the work of the Holy Spirit bringing it alive in you. So if you are, you're, you're, you're just like, Right now, in sin, right? Some of you, you are addicted to porn. You are addicted to sleeping around. And you've gone from vicious cycle of sleeping around, asking God for forgiveness, feeling real bad, saying, I'll do better, recommitment, sleeping around, and this vicious cycle. And you are just in the midst of this. And you today are feeling cast out. You feeling censured. You feeling condemned. You feeling disapproved. You even feel irredeemable, incurable. I want you to know, I mean, this is clearly in one's, I want you to know if you are in Christ and a child of God, you are justified by the resurrection of Christ. And no matter what Satan says to you, anybody else says to you, you stand today, not tomorrow, not if you do better, today uncondemnable. Today undisapprovable. Today unseparatable from the love of God. Today. This is why the gospel, the good news, Remember I said you need to hear the bad news about yourself? Now check this out. As wicked and as sinful as we are in Christ, the Bible says we are more accepted and more loved than we dared hope at the same time. At the same time, listen, not if you do better tomorrow, not God, I will read my Bible so that, you know, I kind of get things right with you. You don't get right with God by reading the Bible. You are made right with God by the virtue of his death and resurrection for you. It's done. It's a done deal. But what about all those stuff that I struggle with and how? Well, I'm going to get to that in a moment. You are justified. You are justified. You are justified. Amen. This is good news. It gets better. Second big Bible theology word, Christ's resurrection ensures our regeneration. Will you say that with me? Regeneration. What does regeneration mean? The other words that the Bible used to describe regeneration is born again. I know many of us, we associate born again. and have all kinds of negative connotations. It's a perfectly biblical word or new birth. And here's the wonderful promise. You ready? When Christ rose from the dead, he not only ensured our justification that we would be right with God, but God goes, I'm not just going to leave you as a forgiven corpse. I'm going to... Breathe life into you and bring about change in your character, in your behavior, in your mindset. The resurrection. You know why this is so important that Christ rose from the dead? Because your ability to become Jesus-like is absolutely impossible had it not born for his resurrection and his resurrection power coming inside of you today, working inside of you today. And for anybody that says, I'm beyond hope, Really? 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 Because God would say to you, really? I took a body that was dead and beaten, embalmed in 100 pounds of ointment, and stanking after three days in a grave. And I brought that sucker back to life. Sucker. I brought that body back to life. And if God could bring about a body that had been beaten and dead, 100 pounds of women, dead for three days, stinking, dead, completely dead and buried, and bring it back to life, I don't know about you, but you don't look so bad. There's hope for you. But you know what the thing is, though? We don't believe this. I'll tell you why we don't believe it. 
Because if we really believe that God's resurrection power was living within us, we have this incredible reservoir of potential possibility, we would not live our lives the way we do, right? We ask God for so little. We ask God for so little. I mean, goodness gracious. It's like intellectually we believe that Jesus is alive, but then we functionally act as if he's still dead because we ask God for so little. C.S. Lewis again, mere Christianity. This is what he says. This is just so me. I just get lost with my, oh, here it is. C.S. Lewis, imagine yourself living in a house. Christian, you ask God to make some repairs in you. At first, he's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. But presently, he starts knocking down the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a different kind of house from the one that you thought of. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little college cottage when in fact God is in the process of building a palace fit for a king. Because we don't believe the resurrection power lies within us, all we ask God is to make some repairs in our cottage. You know, God, will you forgive me for that sin? God, will you help me for that situation? God, will you give me some strength? And God's going, do you know the real me? Because if you knew the real me, you would know the kinds of changes that I'm about to bring into your life. Okay. Can I get real practical? Practical. If you believe this, you would have infallible hope about the struggles of sins in your life. If you really believe that Christ's resurrection power lies within you, I don't care what you struggle with. I don't care what your sins are. You would live with infallible hope that God can free you. The truth of the gospel is if you believe in the resurrection power, you don't, have to, you, you don't have to live the way you used to live because you are not the person you used to be. You don't have to live the way you used to live. You are not the person you used to be. We live in a culture where we're taught to cope with things. Look, I have no problems with psychology or counseling or therapy. I understand it works, right? But I want to make sure we get some balance, you know, because the coping mechanism and coping, you know, that type of thing, sometimes it robs us from this incredible truth, you know? Well, you know, you're going to struggle with anger forever for the rest of your life, but at least you'll learn to cope with your anger. Or you're going to be a jerk for the rest of your life, but, you know, at least you'll, you'll, you'll cope with being a jerk for the rest of your life. Do you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God didn't come and rise from the dead just to help you cope. He came to change you. Belief in resurrection reminds us that Christianity is not a self-improvement program. Christianity is about total transformation. So let me talk to some of you guys. Some of you guys, can I be blunt here? You need to go home and you need to repent of your sin of cynicism. You're not just skeptical. You know, skepticism is, God, I don't know if this will work. God, I doubt. That's skepticism. Cynicism is when you become so jaded that you go, God can't. God can't. God can't. I'm telling you right now, is there some area in your life where you've become so cynical as a Christian I think C.S. Lewis said this. A cynical Christian is an oxymoron, just like a joyless Christian. How does a Christian live with sin? How do you become jaded when you, if you believe that the resurrection power of Christ lies within you? Hmm? Is that possible? Is that possible? Do you need to go home today and be reminded of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and is changing you? It's changing me.
I'll tell you what. Let's go on. The individual aspect of resurrection. Third, real quick, Christ's resurrection ensures cosmic renewal. In verse 21, we talk about this a lot in our church, so just a brief mention. 21, Peter says that he today lives and reigns in heaven, but that he will return one day to restore everything. As we'll see later in the Bible, Jesus' resurrection ushers in the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. And the resurrection of Christ wasn't just meant so that we could enjoy our personal, individual, spiritual salvation. But the resurrection of Christ, his bodily resurrection, reminds us that that was a pointer to all of us and to the world. That what awaits us in the end and what God is up to is not just salvation of souls, but restoration of everything materially. What awaits us is restoration of all of creation. So there isn't hope just for us and our forgiveness of sins, but there's hope for every sphere, every aspect of our world. And as Christians, that means that our calling is not just to make sure somebody is well or saved spiritually, but then we work for their psychological, we work for their social, we work for the good and the healing and restoration of all facets of the world. And then it's not pointless because God will someday return and restore everything. And if you believe in the resurrection, then it prompts you, it propels you outward to say, God, I live my life in such a way that the world out there would experience the resurrection of Christ as well. Okay? What is Jesus? Who was Jesus? What did Jesus do? Now, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? Verse 19, Peter says there are two essential components of what it is that we do. He says, repent and turn towards God. Repent and turn towards God. Repentance, the Greek word metanoia, is not what you think. I assure you it's not what you think. When we think repentance, we think deep sorrow and feeling sorry for the things that we've done. It's certainly that, but it's much, much more than that. Repentance, you guys, if you're taking notes, literally means a change of mind. Repentance literally means a change of mind or to, or to flesh it out. It's literally changing the way we approach God. That's what repentance is. It's changing the entire way we approach God. So in repentance, in repentance, we come to God differently. What do I mean? Two things. We approach God not on the basis of now our work, our merit, our goodness, our righteousness, but we now approach God based on the work of Christ, his righteousness, his good work, his sacrifice. Universal religion of the world says that we do good things and we give it to God and he owes us. Christianity says God does the good for us in the form of the work of his son Jesus Christ and he gives it to us. And we embrace it and we live for him. I said earlier, you know, it's amazing to me because... During the time of Jesus, the people that were most open to this radical news of the gospel were people who were able to come to God and say, God, I have nothing. I have nothing to offer. I'm a wretched, fallen human being with nothing to offer you. To save and nothing but the grace and grace alone will do. And it's the religious people, the moral people, the people who lived on sort of a meritocracy of based on what you achieve and what you do that really struggle with this because the center of the gospel says that unless you're willing to come naked in hand with nothing before God and saying, God, I've got nothing to offer you, nothing, nada. All you need is nothing. And all you need is need. That's the essence of the gospel. 
So this will be offensive to some of you today going, if that's how it works, then I don't want it. Great. Great. I'm glad you got a chance to hear this because at least you heard clearly. But if you're willing to come and say, God, as Jeremiah says, even my good righteous deeds are like filthy rags. I've got nothing to offer you. Changing your whole approach to God. Repentance. Secondly, it's also changing your whole approach to God this way. People think salvation is just about, well, I accept Jesus into my heart and I live my life the way I want to. Repentance is changing your whole approach to God this way. He no longer becomes the means to an end, but he becomes your end. He no longer becomes, you know, a foundation that you can build other things. Uh, uh, you know, uh, he becomes something that you can, you can sort of build. He, he becomes your foundation. He becomes that thing that you build your life on. So repentance, and I say this in our church a lot, right, is uprooting our idols, uprooting our old allegiances, uprooting whatever it is that we're building our lives and our identity on and worth on. It's uprooting all those things that's causing us, the essence of it's uprooting those things and saying, God, I repent of that. God, I changed that. Those things will no longer be my foundation. Those things will no longer be the things that I live for. Those things will no longer define me and identify me. But I build my life on an entire different foundation. I build my life on the unshakable foundation that is Jesus. Repentance involves not just an adherence to a mental assent to certain things. Repentance is saying, God, I will no longer build my life on that. But I build my life on you. Repentance. And then he says... There's another vital component, though, and that is you got to turn towards God. I'll tell you why the Bible tells us and why this is so important. If I can graphically illustrate it here. You can't just repent and not do anything else. You'll never experience Christ because here's the reason why. In our natural state, in our natural state, we turn our face towards sin and we turn our backs towards God. This is how we function. We turn our face towards sin and we, we, we turn our backs towards God. In repentance and in salvation, we turn our face towards God and we turn our backs towards sin. And here's the thing. Your ability and my ability to turn our backs towards sin is not possible unless you are actually captured and blown away by the beauty of who Jesus is and what he did for you. When the Bible says repent and believe, it's saying not just mentally agree, but believe this. Believe he did that for you. He did that for me. He did that for us. Why? He loves you like that. He loves you like that. He loves you like that. Repentance and turning towards God, repentance and belief is important. Why? Because the end goal of the Christian life is not just to stop sinning. The end goal of the Christian life is to start worshiping. The end goal of the Christian life is not just to stop doing bad things, but the end goal of the Christian life is to be so consumed with God and the beauty of God and the wonder of God and the majesty of God that the very sins they used to live for no longer attract you or draw attention to you because it doesn't really have that power anymore. Our ability to uproot our foundations and no way we used to live and our repentance of that is only possible to the extent and to the degree that at the same time we turn our face towards God and see the beauty and see the wonder and see the all sufficiency and see the incredible sacrifice and see the unbelievable, infinite, amazing love of God. Oh God, that he loves you like that, that he loves you like that. 
And if you're a Christian here this morning, and I'm telling you, if your Christian life is anemic, it's bland, it's dead, it's spiritually nothing, if you're just merely existing, it is because our, the Christian life isn't just the gospel, believe it so that I can go to heaven. The gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A to Z of the Christian life. The reason why our spiritual lives are anemic in the way they are is because it's process of repentance turned towards God. Repentance turned towards God is an everyday, every moment thing. Everyday moment thing. When is the last time you were electrified by the beauty of God that you looked at the sin in your life and said, oh, that's disgusting. Why would I want to do that? And your ability to say, oh, that's disgusting. Why would I want to do that? It's not possible if the beauty and the love of God is not grabbing you and saying, why would you want that when you could have this? That is the Christian life. That is the Christian life. It's not about rules. It's not about behavior modification. It's not about, I know these things and I ought to do them. Gosh darn, I'm going to try and pray hard and show up Wednesday morning prayer. The essence of the Christian life is you are so consumed by the beauty of Jesus that everything in the world just seems pale. Are you there? Here's what I want to do as we end today's service. This morning, because um, another thing that we see in the book of Acts, you guys, is uh, whenever the apostles declared the gospel, they always made it a point to call people for a decision. Do you know that? In other words, they, they basically said, here's the gospel. Here's what we've talked about. Here's what you need to know about Jesus. And the, gospel, the apostles said to them boldly, you need to make a decision. Now, if they didn't want to make a decision, that was fine. There's no feelings, no offense, you know, hurt feelings. But they constantly put it before the people and saying, you need to make a decision. And it's perfectly biblical. So that's what I'm going to do today. And that's what I do in our church. So I give an opportunity for people in our church to make a decision that is if you consider yourself somebody who's not a Christian, I don't care how long you've been going to church, Catholic, grew up Catholic, religious. If you, what I talked about today, the essence of the gospel of who Jesus is, he is God, the son of God, not just a teacher, not just a model. If you know that Christ died for our sins, my sins, put him there. And he rose again from the dead so that we can be made right with God, changed and transformed into his likeness. In our church, we don't turn off the lights and have people close their eyes and raise their hand. I'll tell you why. This morning, perfect example, this morning, 9 o'clock, I, I gave this gospel call. Nobody did anything, and after the service, two people walked up. A single mom and a little child. I said, we want Jesus. I said, why did you put that? They said, because we were scared. I'm like, oh. Because here's the point. I forgot to mention this. We don't do this to like show it off. Like literally like I, I want to like leave the room actually after I do this and then have you the church be the church. Because here's the thing. You can't live the Christian life on your own. So even when you commit and saying, God, I want to follow you. Jesus, all that you did for me. I believe it. I want to follow you. Once you make that decision, you need to let other people know. You let other people know who say, we saw that. We saw you. And we're not going to leave you alone. We're not going to let you be. We are your church family. We're going to come around you. By the way, what's your name? That's how we do it in this church. Do you see? That's how we do it in this church. So, should I leave the room? Maybe I should leave the room and have you guys be the church, you know? If you, 
I'm not going to use the word accept Jesus. If you today hear the message and say, I crucified him. He died for my sins. I accept that. I approach God not on the basis of what I do, I, I, I've done, but what he's done. And I don't want to live my life centered around me, running things my way. I'm done with that. I repent of that and I turn towards God. If that is your desire, I need you to stand up and come forward and join me up here today so that we can be your church family, come around you and support you and be there for you. And don't you dare wait until after the service. Is there anybody? Is there anybody? Everybody. Is there anybody? Anybody? Oh, sorry, guys, for just, just talking. I already know these two. <laughs> I actually believe in my heart that you both know Jesus, and you're here because you understand that, that this process, as you said, Kevin, is an everyday thing. You don't know him well enough, you don't know him well enough yet? You don't want me to ask him a $500 bill today? He wants me to ask him to win the lottery every day and then give it away we're going to wait just a, a little bit more really if anybody if anybody again if you grew up in church God, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter it doesn't matter to God one bit you're just saying I needed Jesus I don't know him please we want to come around you dear family is there anybody is there anybody? What's that, Philip? If you feel disgusted with yourself, I want to invite you to go to the foot of the cross, Philip, and pray. You guys, let's all pray together, shall we? Um, maybe today's uh, sermon message is um, something that Christians needed to hear. That's the essence of the gospel. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know. We'll be up here after the service if you want to talk, ask further questions. God, pray that you would continue to work in him or her and pray that you would continue to reveal the truth. God, I pray for my, my buddies up here, Chris and Kevin. God, I pray and lift them up unto you. Thank you for their humility and their willingness to acknowledge and admit, God, their 
sinfulness and their need of you. Father, I pray and ask that you would first and foremost remind my brothers, God, that you love them unconditionally, that they stand before you justified, that they stand before you righteous, they stand before you, God, lacking nothing. They stand before you, Jesus, knowing that you are at work in their hearts and in their lives. There may be mourning, uh, but joy comes in the morning. And I just pray and ask Jesus that you would just, by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, embrace your sons. And I pray for anybody else out there, Jesus, who need to be reminded of this truth during this holiday season. Holy Spirit, only you can do this work. And so we ask and pray. The truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose again and calls us to repent and turn towards you. That truth would come alive in our hearts. Come alive in Kevin and Chris's heart and Philip's heart and anybody else here needs to hear this truth. I lift it up unto you. I lift it up to you. Can we all stand together at church as we sing and respond in this song? It's a declaration of Jesus as our Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. It was done his work of salvation for us. Jesus, you are the Messiah, a Savior, Lord, conquering King. God, we thank you and we praise you for your awesome, amazing work. Your death for our death. Your life for our life. The great exchange has occurred. It's done once and for all. You stand today, child of God, justified. You stand today, child of God, made right with God. The empty tomb and his resurrection declares your position in Christ loud and clear. We are people of infallible hope. We are people of infallible hope. You stand today. You stand today loved and accepted more than you've ever dared imagine. Live your life this week. Carry that valuable treasure in your heart. And when opportunity arises, open your mouths and share and declare the most amazing news that this world has ever heard. May the Lord be with you. May his spirit empower you. May God the Father, may God the Father, may God the Father shower and overwhelm you with his love. Amen and amen and amen. Have a great week, you guys, and we'll see you back here next Sunday, 10 o'clock, as we celebrate Christmas Sunday.